find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my very special guest and friend, Dr. Odell Moreno-Owens. Dr. Owens, welcome to A Current Life. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Dr. Owens graduated from Antioch College. He earned an MD and a Master's in Public Health from Yale University. He completed a Fellowship of Reproductive Endocrinology at Harvard Medical School. And in Cincinnati, he established the first successful in vitro fertilization program and later served as senior medical director for a large insurance company. He's been president and CEO of a nonprofit educational organization and was twice elected Hamilton County Coroner. In August of 2010, he was named the fifth president of Cincinnati State Technical and Community College, which serves over 22,000 students annually. Dr. Owens, you and I have known each other since the sixth grade, so this is indeed an honor. You've been a huge influence to me and to my family, and uh, it's a real honor to have you on the show. Well, I'm indeed honored, and equally, Jimmy, I remember our fun days at, uh, in sixth grade and, uh, and Troop 96 when we were Boy Scouts together, and I've certainly you followed were. your exciting career over the years. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. So uh, this show is about life's journey and the ups and downs that all of us experience and try to overcome to get where each of us is meant to be. So on that note... I'd like to start off with your early years, Odell, and ask you, what was life like growing up in the West End of Cincinnati during the 50s and 60s? Well, actually, in the 50s, it was, uh, it was actually good. I mean, the West End of Cincinnati is certainly one of the poor neighborhoods, and I always joke with people, you know, we were poor, but my parents never told us we were poor, you know, and, and uh, even though we lived in, you know, in a four-room apartment, uh, we had a home because we had a lot of love. Well, you attended Walnut Hills High School, which is also my alma mater, uh, which I think was a, a, one of the great institutions in Cincinnati. And, and uh, what was that like for you? And did you always know kind of what you wanted to do with your life, or were there a lot of different moments of trying different things and thinking about things? Well, Jimmy, you may not remember, but at the end of the eighth grade, I was called into the counselor's office, and I was told I had flunked the eighth grade at Walnut Hills. And I was given two choices, go to summer school and take two classes and repeat the eighth grade at Walnut Hills, or go to summer school and take two classes and go into the ninth grade at my local high school. So I left Walnut Hills. I, I flunked out. It was, a, it was a tough time in my life. 
Um, my mother had died uh, a year and a half before, and uh, there were seven children, ages eight months to 12 years. And when one of my younger brothers or sisters were sick, I was the one who had to stay home. So you know what Walnut Hills was like in those days? You miss a day, you miss a week. And it wasn't that I, I wasn't good. I, I just couldn't get to school. Uh, and, but Walnut Hills gave me a, a great foundation. But then going over to Woodward, uh, we met, I met a lot of dedicated teachers who gave me a lot more confidence to, to succeed. You know, I've learned from doing this show, Adele, you know, that, that we all have, you know, moments in our life that define us. And certainly that was one of your moments that, that defined you. And they're not always easy. I've always felt adversity is the thing that makes us better and more strong if it doesn't kill us in the, uh, while going through it. And so, you know, you're in a large family and you're one of the responsible ones in your family. And that event happens. That was certainly an obstacle. How did you overcome that? What were the things you think inside of you that either were taught by your mom to you or, you know, that just, just gave you the strength to, to endure? Um, it, it certainly came from my mother and my grandmother. When my mother died, my grandmother kind of stepped up, and then she died two years later. So it really was a terrible time. But my mother had given us a great foundation. Uh, my mother required us to go to Sunday school and to church every Sunday, where my grandmother was very active. And so that really gave us, I think, a good moral starting to um, uh, go to church, and then it was reinforced at home. My parents did not finish high school. My mother went to the 11th grade, my father to the 8th grade, and she kept her report cards, and she was a great student. And she drilled into us every day, you're going to do better than she, you're going to finish school, you're going to make something of yourself. So did it was you... that strength coming from the base, getting it from my mother and growing up in the church. So did you see a lot of your friends in the community, you know, and around you not able to overcome those obstacles? And has that really had a lot of the impact in helping you give so much back that you've done? I mean, the people that are listening to the show, the show goes into 187 countries, and, you know, we're proud of that. But really what this show is about is to try to give people hope and help them endure and go through, and all of us are going through difficult times, as we have been over the last number of years with our economy and you know, just the different battles across the, the globe that are going on. And uh, it seems that the global village is, is affecting all of us in, uh, almost daily in our daily lives. What did, what did you feel separated you from the ones who weren't having such an easy time at overcoming? And maybe, you know, some of your friends, it, it you know, really kind of took them down. Jimmy, it was, it was really a combination of things. I hit my, I would say, my rock bottom when... Uh, my father lost his job. We went on welfare. Uh, he didn't pay the bills. They turned off our electricity. We didn't have heat. I, did, I lived in a house with no electricity for a year. Um, and I had a raggedy coat. I was being teased by the kids on the school bus. So I went downtown one day, and I was going to go to Shillitoe's, a local store here in Cincinnati, and I was going to steal a coat. And I was so desperate. And I went downtown, got to the store, reached for the door and, you know, just heard the, you know, the voices of my mother and my mm -hmm. grandmother saying, you weren't raised this way. And the next day, Jimmy, it snowed. It was a real heavy snowstorm. And I went up on Rose Hill, you know, that neighborhood. And sure. I shoveled snow all day. And I went and bought my own coat. It wasn't expensive, but it was new and it was mine. And at that moment, I realized that I had to take care of myself and I could do it. And with hard work, I could do it the right way and not go down the easy path to go and steal a coat. 
there were many kids that I interacted with who did not have that strong, first that strong fundamental foundation of really teaching you right from wrong. When I was cornered, I was certainly convinced and saw incidents of young people who, didn't, who were really amoral. They didn't know. They kind of knew right and wrong, but, but not in the way that you and I were taught. And uh, so I think the difference is the, the foundation and the fact that at a very young age, 11, 12 years old, I learned I had to depend upon myself. And that hard work, shoving that snow all day, buying that coat, taught me I could take care of myself. Is that something that you can teach uh, others, you think, as you're going through uh, the many developments in education that you're creating, along with the college and all the other things that you do in the community? I mean, there's numerous things that you get back on, and we'll talk about that in the show. But, I mean, is this something you can teach through example to people and tell them and help them identify with what you went through? I hope so. I, I hope that you can teach by example and teach by experience, you know, when I go out and, and, and give talks, I tell people, yes, I could easily give you uh, uh, a talk that will stimulate your brain and your mental gymnastics, but I'd rather talk to your heart. And I try to talk to people's heart about life and about giving back and the struggles that people have and how much better it is for you as a person when you can help another individual. So you hope you do it by example. You hope you inspire people by your words, but, but more importantly and always by your deeds. Was there... <clears throat> A hero in your life as a child, somebody that you looked up to uh, that really had an impact on you? Well, I was fortunate I had I sort of had multiple people. Certainly my grandmother was the most fascinating woman in my life. And uh, and then I, I, in order to support myself at 12, I worked uh, for a, a physician. Uh, he was the first African-American surgeon in Cincinnati. And I would babysit his children. I would cut his grass. I shoveled his snow. I cleaned, I painted, I catted for him, I washed the cars, any type of odd work that they needed, they called me. And I would go and spend oftentimes a weekend at their house because they would have me babysit on a Friday or Saturday night. And so he certainly uh, was such a tremendous inspiration, one, being a physician and being a surgeon, and certainly had grew up in the South and went through the the issues of being an African-American growing up in the South. Uh, but he was a real, his whole family was a real inspiration. You know, it's amazing. Uh, a lot of the people we've had on the show, you know, either didn't go to college or didn't go to, had troubles in high school. Some of the people like Tyrese Gibson went to high school so that he could eat because he could not right. afford to eat outside of it. So I'm looking at, you know, when I, when I, we did, we do a lot of research and we were looking at the, at the research on you. So you flunk out of school at a young age and then you end up going to Antioch College and earning an MD and then a master's in public health from, a, from Yale University and a fellowship at Harvard. I mean, they're just so extreme. And, and when you hear that, I would think it would, it would be a, have a remarkable effect on the people that are in your college today. Just hearing your story like today, when they listen to it, they've got to be shaking their head going, I can do that too. Well, absolutely. I, you know, I always tell people I was not the diamond in the rough, that I was the rough. And I think all of us just need a little, a little bit of help. Um, the, the, the part of it is that I wanted it, Jimmy. I, I, when I was poor, I dreamed, Jimmy, of eating cheeseburgers every day. That, wow. that was that was my goal. I'm a, not steak, cheeseburgers. You know, uh, we we didn't have those kind of things for a while, and and so that motivated. There were things that I wanted in life, and that was a difference that I had that fire. There were things that I was wanted, but I was willing to make the sacrifice. 
I was willing to study harder. I was willing to study harder than other people. And I had to to catch up. But I was willing to make that because I wanted something out of life. So and I always tell of... people, never let your past dictate your future, but always let it be part of you. And what I tell young people, how can chem- chemistry or calculus or physics be hard? Being poor was hard. Being teased by other kids, not having what other kids had, going hungry, that was hard. So when people put educational things in front of us, we, we should all be able to overcome those. So really what started your path to medicine? Was it the surgeon you were doing the jobs for? What, what was it that made you choose medicine as your career path? That was certainly the, sort of a tantalizing feature, but I love biology. I, I just simply seemed to have a natural draw to biology and zoology, and so that seemed to be a natural path. And then what a great sense that I wanted to help other people. And I think when you combine that kind of passion and compassion, it leads yourself into medicine. You know, people look at, at my bio and they say, well, God, you're all over the place. You've done all these different kinds of things, whether it be entertainment or sports or private equity or whatever. And I always tell them there's a theme that runs through it. There's a thread that runs through it, which is I, I love building creative ideas into reality. And as I look at your career uh, certainly, it's not a traditional one. You know, you were the first fertility doctor in society to successfully bring a vitro baby into the world. You were in the corporate world working for an insurance company. You ran for public office. You were coroner twice. Uh, now you're running a, commu- a large community college, probably the largest community college of its kind in, in the country. Uh, what's the theme for you, the thread that runs through it? Well, it, it, it certainly is. Very early in life, I wanted to be an agent of social change. I'm also director of U.S. Bank, which is the fifth largest financial institution in the country. And and my earlier role on the bank was to bring them the consciousness of the community in terms of our philosophy and our morality on our on our loans and if we were doing things in the community. But for me, the common thread is to is to to be an agent of social change to have impact, and that's been accomplished, I think, through education. When I was the coroner, I ran on a platform, the higher the graduation rate, the lower the homicide rate. Cincinnati was experiencing a tremendous increase in the homicide rate, like many other large urban core cities. And I knew that it was due to a lack of education. If I could motivate more kids to stay in school, then one, they would not be the victim of a homicide, and hopefully nor would they uh, incur and be the, the person committing the homicide. Well, you know, as I, as I look at, at your resume, I'm, and before we do, I certainly think you and I would agree, and I know my partner Fred Marison would agree, that one of, the, one of the great leaders at U.S. Bank, Richard Davis, is not only just an incredible business guy, but he's an incredible human being. And uh, Absolutely. Uh, we were very fortunate to have him in Cincinnati, where U.S. Bank came out of, and very fortunate to have him at the head of U.S. Bank. So um, let me ask you... Uh, what made you choose OBGYN as your specialty uh, as opposed to one of the other specialties, whether it's pediatrics, neurology, or orthopedic? Well, you know, Jimmy, it's interesting. I got a uh, phone call from the dean of Yale Medical School in my senior year, and he said, Odell, you want to graduate in uh, May, I, I assume. I said, yes. He said, but you haven't taken your rotation in OBGYN. I kind of delayed it. I thought I wouldn't really like 
that rotation. So I kind of put it at the bottom of my list, and I really thought that I was going to go and become a urologist because I, I love the mixture of medicine and the surgical piece of being a urologist. But when I did that, that rotation at OBGYN, it just felt like a glove. My patients responded to me. Information seemed to, to be easy for me to absorb. It just felt right, and that's when I knew this is the specialty for me. But within that specialty, one of the, my professors was an infertility specialist, and I really admired him, loved his work, loved uh, the kind of practice that he had, and that led me into being a uh, reproductive endocrinologist. Well, tell me about the Irving Friedman Award, which you run as, out, as you, you, you won as Outstanding Chief Resident in the Department of OBGYN at Yale Medical School. Tell me about that award and what that meant to you at the time. It, it really meant a lot. You know, when you look back over your life and, and uh, you know, flunking out of Walnut Hills, and I went to Woodward. And actually, when I started off at Woodward, the counselor did not want me to take academic classes. She wanted me to take shop because she said, you just flunked out of Walnut Hills. You can't handle this other work. And I begged her to let me take ninth grade algebra, ninth grade biology, which she was not going to let me do, to be able to look back on life and to go through uh, Antioch College and then Yale Medical School and then go through residency and then to be named the top resident uh, at Yale in that department was just one of the crowning jewels of my life. It really validated all the hard work and validated the the hardship, and it just says if you work hard and you really want something, you can achieve it. doesn't mean that everybody's going to go to Yale or Harvard. I don't expect that, but I expect people to set goals based on their skill set and work hard to reach the zenith of what they can. Well, I agree with you. I, I tend to visualize my, my things, you know, the things I want in life. I try to focus in on the visual and then go yes. out and do it. I, I've always believed the most important thing that every person, all of us, all of our younger people need to believe, they need to believe that anything is possible. And they need to have mentors around them, people like yourself and, you know, the people that obviously teach at your college and, and just the people in business. We started an intern program for over 100 kids that we do with various schools who want to either be sports agents or go into private equity or Broadway or entertainment, movies, whatever, because hands-on experience when they're in school, I mean, there's nothing like going into the real world and understanding what an office is like and what a, what a group of people act like every day so that when they get into the real world, you know, it's not going to be so foreign to them. They won't be so scared. I've often felt, probably not to the liking of the NCAA, that the athletes should be paid something so that agents don't look like such incredible, you know, like that's their, like that's the most important thing in the world to make a few dollars. And right. and I've always felt that way, and I've had several arguments with the NCAA. I said, give them a stipend, give them something that allows them to feel that they can be self-supporting, and then they won't be dependent and make bad decisions. So it, it, it I know what's great about your college is that you teach people to really learn to take care of themselves ultimately. That's what it's about, isn't it? Yes. You know, a community college is a place where, first of all, you give people that second, third, and fourth chance of the American dream. Our average age is 27, and we say our average student has two children, two part-time jobs, and takes two buses to get to campus. But if they're willing to work hard, if they're willing to work hard, they can get... Uh, a degree, we have 75 of them, or a certificate program. We have certificate programs which people can, can get a certificate in eight weeks. And uh, an example as well is home weatherization. They can do that in eight weeks. And we had a student go through that program, have flunked out of college, 
uh, bartender, two kids, unhappy, 30 years old. He now has eight employees in a company that he was able to build around his eight-week certificate in home weatherization. You first follow your passion, follow where your skill set seems to bring you, and then get either a degree or certificate so that you can go to work. Community colleges create the middle class in this country. I agree. What, what was it like being a clinical instructor in OBGYN at Harvard? Well, it was sort of interesting because, you know, I, I went up to Harvard, and um, <laughs> it was it, it's kind of funny because when I applied to medical school, I got accepted at Yale, and I got rejected at Harvard. When I applied for an internship, and when you apply for an internship, and I applied for internship in obstetrics and gynecology at Yale and at Harvard, uh, you get ranked. They, they rank you number one to whatever number they, they'll, they'll do. Number one means that you're the first person they want, and then you rank your choices, and the computer matches you up. I, uh, Harvard had ranked me number one, but I ranked Yale as my first choice, and I did my four-year residency in OBGYN. So when I applied for the fellowship and went up there, the people at Harvard said, oh, yeah, you're the guy that rejected us. So we finally got together, and, and I went there. But I was the Yaley, which is kind of interesting, because, again, you know the rivalry between sure. you know, Yale or Harvard. A, a quick example of at Yale, every week they would put up uh, the poster of who Yale was playing in the football game. But the last game, the poster would simply say, the game, Saturday, 2 o'clock. And everybody <laughs> knew that was Yale versus Harvard. So I was a kid coming up from Yale. So it was a little bit different. People were looking to see uh, how different we were from the Harvard train. And fortunately for me, the Yale training program was much more surgically oriented than the Harvard program. So I actually went up and did a surgical procedure at Harvard that had never been done in Boston and had never been done at Harvard, but we did them every month at Yale. So wow. that really vaulted me into, a, into a, uh, a position of instant respect because I could do a surgical procedure that no one in Boston could do, but commonly so, done at Yale. So was it your plan to return to Cincinnati after Harvard to practice in Cincinnati? Well, when, when I finished, the people at Yale wanted me to come back. Um, there was a opening for reproductive endocrinologists at the Mass General, which is, you know, the number one hospital sure. in the country at that time. But, you know, Jimmy, I spent 12 years in the Ivy League, and I decided I wanted to see what I could do. When you walk around at Harvard with a white coat that has Harvard Medical School on your coat, you're going to be successful. People are going to come see you because it's Harvard they're coming to see. I wanted to see if I could be successful as Odell Owens. So I decided to come back to Cincinnati to practice, to really find out who I was in terms of my medical skills. I didn't need the ego or the promoter of the Abbey League anymore. Well, I, you know, I told my son, and I know uh, his mother, Jean Manning, who works with you, you know, feels a similar way. Uh, I had an interesting conversation. He's 17 and he's 6'8", and as you know, plays basketball. And Harvard has asked him to come to the Harvard camp, and he's also looking at other schools. And his comment to me was, well, I guess if I go to Harvard and play basketball, uh, I won't have to do much after basketball because it, once you have a Harvard degree, you don't have to work so hard. And I looked at him and I went, well, you probably have great connections, but you still have to work very hard the rest of your life. So I assume that you're going on with your creating and establishing the first in vitro fertilization program took incredible hard work and long hours and had a lot of ups and downs to it. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what it felt like to finally achieve it? Yes. You know, when I started uh, the program in in vitro fertilization here, 
uh, it was very early in the process in America. There weren't very many places. In fact, I had left Harvard, and Harvard had had not had an in vitro fertilization program, but we probably were both starting our programs at the same time because it was a very new science. And, and it was tough, but we were so lucky that we had Bessie Dressler. And Bessie Dressler was a Ph.D. who... Um, was involved in Cincinnati Zoo, and she had been doing in vitro in animals. So they had uh, a collection of white tigers. They had a collection of of uh, taking embryos from exotic, uh, almost extinct cats in South America, bringing them to the United States and putting them in regular house cats. So the regular house cats would then deliver these very exotic and rare animals. And she did that in, in many species. So we were able to tap into her expertise with in vitro, combine it with ours, and had our first success after only 13 tries. I know it took Yale 120 tries and took Harvard over 95 tries. So we were really excited. Certainly the first 12 failures, yes, because you, you go in there and you get those embryos. They look good. You, you put them in that woman, it's, and, and they're excited. And then when it doesn't work, it certainly was a tremendous letdown. But the day at work, boy, I tell you, Jimmy, I felt on cloud nine because I knew that we now had a new tool here in Cincinnati that could help many families now have a baby when they've been told in the past there was no other help for them. Well, for our listeners, in November, I think, in 1988, you announced Cincinnati's first pregnancy from a frozen embryo. Uh, yes. Am I correct about that? Yes. Yes. I mean, it, when you well, think about that and, and what's followed and the, the, the incredible joy you've brought to so many families, it's, it's got to be an incredibly re- rewarding feeling inside you. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to do infertility is that, one, you connect with that family the rest of your life. You know, each day, and you know, I haven't practiced since 1998, but each day that I walk through Cincinnati, someone will come up to me and say, hey, you helped my daughter, or they'll come up and say, you helped me 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I was over at an event at Xavier University, and the man walked up with the young lady, and he said, Dr. Owens, you helped help get her in this world. He showed me a picture of, uh, her, of, of his daughter when she was a baby, and I was holding the baby uh, in my lap. And he took another picture of me holding her in my lap. And, and that was just wonderful. And she was so excited to meet the person that had helped her family, you know, create her. So it's a lifelong enjoyment, a lifelong return. And that's why I tell young medical students, I, I've had the honor of giving the uh, first lecture to the incoming medical students at the University of Cincinnati for 27 years. I've given it 27 times. Wow. The, the, the first talk comes to me about what it means to be a physician. And one of the things that I tell them is that money will not sustain this career. You may want to go into medicine and you think you're going to make a lot of money, but it won't do it when you work those long hours and you have to deal with patients that you don't save or you're not successful with. The reason you go into medicine is to help people, and when you get that moment when they look at you and say, thank you, doctor, that's the best payday you'll ever have. Well, I agree with you. I, I believe money is a reward for doing God's work on this planet, and I believe that uh, what you've done is you've changed many lives, and you've changed and given people an alternative that didn't exist. Uh, uh, it's kind of time for us to take a commercial break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about you being elected twice as Hamilton County Coroner and, and some of the things that you experienced during that time. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould with my very special guest, Dr. Odell Owens, and you're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smartwater and Ad Baseball Network. Please stay tuned. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my very special guest, Dr. Odell Owens. Odell, uh, we... we I wanted to touch on before we talk a lot more about the, your community college and some of the experiences there. I want to understand because I don't the life of a coroner and the fact you were elected twice as Hamilton County Coroner. And what, first of all, created that desire for you to do that? Number one, uh, and have the interest in forensic science. And two, really, kind of what that life is like because it seems to me that you probably get more bad things that you got to look at and see and deal with than you get good things. And so right. I'd like to understand that. Well, I was, I was approached uh, uh, by the Democratic Party, uh, and they said, well, we want you to run for coroner. And, and I thought about it, and initially I, I didn't want to do it. I really didn't really have a tremendous interest in forensic science. I love the forensic science shows, but didn't have a real, a real interest. And then one, one day, uh, uh, it just came to me that I could use the coroner's office as a platform for public health. I have a master's degree in public health, and I was concerned about the violence in our city, especially the rising homicide rate. So I actually ran as coroner on the platform. The higher the graduation rate, the lower the homicide rate. And indeed, there is a correlation be, uh, between the two. Uh, but it was very interesting that when I decided to run, I was quickly told, uh, by people, a variety of things. I was told one um, that it's, people said, "Well, you have degrees from Yale and Harvard. This isn't prestigious enough. Uh, this isn't glamorous enough. It's, you're not going to make any money." And I responded that when you want to do public service, it's not about those things. It's about doing doing the the, the better good. And um, I was also told that I couldn't get elected because I was an African American, and African American had had not won any countywide races up to that point. It all had lost. and uh, But again, I felt that I had the right kind of message, and I felt that when you are morally correct, your message will resonate in the hearts of people, and they'll do the right thing when they go to vote. And people did. Now, what year was that? Uh, that I got elected and started in 2004, and then reelected oh. in 2008. So it's a four-year term for each, Four-year term. 
Right. And so, you're right. It is a very, very tough because you really see all of the inhumanity that people have uh, to see young children abused and killed and older people and young people and the way that things and how those things that were done is just really sad how we treat each other. So, and, and that's kind of some of my questions. I mean, I guess um, without getting into too much detail, I mean, first of all, your first day on the job, you're walking in, and what was probably the most difficult moment that you faced as a coroner, whether it was a particular case or whatever, that you really, you really realized the inhumanity that you're talking about? Uh, certainly seeing a child. The, the, the first time I think I saw a baby that was killed, uh, I, I just couldn't comprehend uh, how you could become so upset with a, a newborn baby that you throw it against the wall. Right. Um, so that, that, that was hard. Uh, and, and the second was a case um, that I remember going in from the TV cameras and saying what was left of a child I could hold in my hand because the child was burned, cut up and burned. And, and the only thing was left was some few ashes and a few bones that I could hold in my hand. And I went public with that. My thing was to tell the public why people were dying because I wanted the public to get involved and try to change the course of some of, the, some of these issues. How difficult was the response on that? Did people fight you about doing that, or did they no, appreciate it, that? No, people welcomed it. People always thought the coroner's office was this dark you know, sort of place that the coroner didn't share the information. No one knew who the coroner was. People didn't understand things. And I made the coroner's office more about life than about death. I would tell people, you know, we had our first case. I, w- I would say we had our first case this summer of someone dying from heat stroke. And then I would tell the public, this is what you need to do. Go check on their elderly people. Make sure they have a fan or an air conditioning. Make sure you do these things. When, when someone would, would die from a car accident, I would, I would always look at the toxicology and be able to say and get back to the public that 60% of people killed in a car accident had alcohol or, or that 60% of homicide victims also had drugs in their body. And so the public really responded. When I talked about suicides, that's where the first pushback came upon came back and people said, oh, no, no, we don't talk about suicides. I'm like, how can you not talk about suicides when our city and county is averaging one suicide every three days? Wow. One every three days. No one wanted to talk about it, but I did and brought that to the forefront because I wanted people to understand the early warning signs so they could get the arm around that person before something happened. So how, how did this affect, you know, in, in, without getting, again, into a personalization thing, but more or less the, the debate that constantly is going on about capital punishment. I mean, when I think about what just happened um, about the three women being found after right. 10 years, you know, it, 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 is, it, is, it boggles my mind. I mean, that people were partying in the house and being in the house, and there's three women who were taken at young ages, locked in the rooms and couldn't get out, and it, it, I don't understand it. I mean, I, I don't understand it from a human side, but I also don't understand it that that I mean, what is if we didn't if we didn't have and I'll ask this I don't have a position on this but if we didn't have capital punishment is it likely that the women would have survived? I mean, in other words, where's the deterrence and how did you look at that and how did all of this kind of come about and affect your views and how did your views change from this? Well, certainly I've always had you know I'm a physician and I believe in life and try to ensure that people can have quality of life. I also felt there is a role in our society for capital punishment, but it's not a deterrent. It doesn't work 
because it takes 25 years for it to happen. If you have a gang and a gang goes out and they kill two or three people cold-bloodedly over some marijuana, and you capture those gang members, but you hold them in jail for 20 years before they're executed, the other gang members by that time are dead themselves or old or out of the gang. There's, there's no deterrent. If it was done within two or three years, I would support it even more because then people are going to say, wow, you know, look what happened to Johnny. Yes, he was executed last year. It's not used appropriately. Might when you're spending 20, 25 years in jail after you're convicted. So, I mean, you really have also a total system that, in a way, was broken. I mean, you know, whether it's the rehabilitation of the prison system. I mean, obviously, in mental health today, we have such issues. And with the budgets being cut back, we're going to have more issues. And and so I look at this kind of in its totality because I think, you know, it's like the sum of the parts. You know, we have to – I mean, I believe in life. I believe that there are um, inherently good people that – you know, uh, uh, things happen to and environmental things take place. And, and I've just never been able, I, it actually physically makes me sick if I read a story about a child being abused. It, right. It's why, it's why I went on the National Board to Prevent Child Abuse America and helped write their, you know, their commercials and their, and their strategy. I, I don't understand it. And I would think it would have been really hard for you to get the phone call and be the first one that had to go there and really under try to reason of what happened. I mean, right. it had to have changed you. Did you have sleepless nights? Well, not so much sleepless nights. I think, first of all, because I'm a physician, mm-hmm. and from the first day of medical school, I'm taught about death. As a medical doctor, I don't always, as a medical doctor, I don't always view death as a defeat. Mm. As a medical doctor, there are times in which I will welcome death in the patient. That means I brain death, the fact that we know there's no more we can do to that patient, and that patient is suffering. So we grow up with a different respect for death. Now, on the other hand, when I told you about my views on capital punishment, it is tempered by the fact that there were people on death row, and when DNA became a widely used tool, freed them. So we yeah. have some fallacies in our court system where we have people on death row who were innocent. And certainly, hopefully, and there are many people who were probably put to death who were innocent because we didn't have DNA. But I think what happened, the coroner's office changed me. But, you know, I balanced out the badness, Jimmy, with I used to average 150 talks a year out of the coroner's office. I went to every high school, every junior high school, every prison, every, every place that children were incarcerated or, or where children played, boys club, girls club, after school clubs, talking to them about not being a victim, not to come to my house, stay in school, get an education, and be able to move out of the neighborhood where all these bad things were happening, become a productive citizen. So I balanced that because I would get letters from young people saying, Dr. Owens, I heard you, I listened, I'm going to try to do better. That well, you know, kept me going. I mean, I you know, I personally um, feel strongly against capital punishment, but I also sometimes look at it and say, I would personally like to go out back and take care of it myself. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people would say that. Absolutely, and, absolutely. You know, if somebody did something unbelievable, I mean, just unimaginable, we really ought to deal with it within a period of time, and I mean right. a quick period of time, if we have all the evidence. The problem is that forensics have changed over the over the period of time and so to me putting one innocent person to death is not 
I mean, right. you may miss a few, but it, but I can't live with putting an innocent person to death. But Jimmy, the the, the person who's involved in the the survive, surviving person involved in the Boston bombing. Now that person deserves a death penalty, in my yes. opinion. But you won't see that for fifteen to twenty years. Yes, that's not going to be turned to his counterparts or to other young terrorists because he's going to be around and be a martyr. So really, what do you do? I mean, how do you change that? Well, again, I, I, you, you first try to change the pool. And, and when I say change the pool, try to get more kids to have self-esteem by, I tell everybody, my formula first starts with teaching every child to read. Teaching child to read so that by the time they get to third grade, if they're reading on the third grade level, they have a chance in life. Studies show if you're not reading on the third grade level, you're finished. And when you don't have self-esteem, then you're open to all the bad ideas that people want to put into your mind. So we have to first start with education, lessen the number of people who want to be involved in crime, and we've got to have a viable workforce so people can have a decent job, a decent pay to raise their families. So let me, let me ask you this. So you left the, the coroner's office and, and, and accepted the job as, as president of Cincinnati State, which has over 22,000 students. Um, tell me about the students that go to Cincinnati State uh, to be educated and why they choose a community college instead of a four-year university. When you look at the, the role of the community college in this country, it's sort of a, uh, your, your last chance in one way. The, the average age of our students is 28 years old, so the majority of them are not coming straight out of high school. My number one feeder to Cincinnati State is the GED, not even the high mm. school diploma. And more kids with GED than a high school diploma. So it's really giving people that second, third, and fourth chance at the American dream. And, you know, and Jimmy, that's what America's about. America is about opportunity. Yes, if you fail this time, but if you're willing to work hard, you can come back. And this country is forgiven enough if you fail the second time in life, you still have a third chance or a fourth chance to make something of yourself. And a community college is affordable. Two years at Cincinnati State financially is equal to one semester at the University of Cincinnati. So for a student that doesn't want to get in debt, parents that don't have enough money, students who are also working and going to school, this is a real viable option. But also community colleges have a way of giving you um, that skill in two years. You can go and become, uh, in two years, get an associate degree as a tech in child care, physical therapy, occupational therapy, where you can go and get a job. Because I said we create the middle class. Uh, by the way, for our listeners, I think your website is www.cincinnatistate.edu. Is that correct? Yes, yes. www.cincinnatistate, all one word, .edu. So certainly I encourage our listeners to pass the word. This is a remarkable uh, community college, a remarkable community college that has changed people's lives, and I'm sure that any questions or inquiries should be made to that website. Um, as president uh, of the college, what is it that you do that you consider the most personally satisfying thing? I get to innovate. I mm-hmm. love it when I can sit down with my staff and say, have you thought about doing this? How about if we did this, something different, something that we haven't done? I'm the out-of-the-box kind of person, obviously, to be president of a community college. I didn't come through an educational system. Uh, so I love when I can innovate and when that innovation leads to a great program on our campus that's going to benefit our students. What's the biggest obstacle that you face uh, for the college? Well, you know, when you're president, you have to deal with many factions. You certainly have the, the other administrators. You have the staff. 
and uh, you have the faculty. And I think the, the hardest part oftentimes is getting everybody on the same page at the same time to really understand what is happening in our country as a whole in education, what's happening at the city level, the state level, the federal government level, the funding level, both private and public, looking at all those issues, the skills gap, the jobs, and getting everybody to understand at the same time what we need to do as an institution to try to get all the parties together to move forward as a single force. And that's been the most difficult piece. And is there anything in particular if you, because this show is listened to, as I said, by people all over the country, that you could say to the business leaders around the country, or Cincinnati is an example, that, that you could use their help in supporting the technical programs you provide? Absolutely. You know, when you look at the history of a, of a community college in this country, you look at the history of Cincinnati State in particular, the business community has not partnered. Even though we're, we're training people who are going into their companies, uh, in Cincinnati, all of the, the, say, Catholic high schools, have a bigger endowment than Cincinnati State. Uh, and that's sad. You know, these are high schools, and, and because they, they have great loyalty from their business community, people who leave, who go into the business, giving back to the school, Cincinnati State has been sort of, sort of ignored. You know, our endowment is $2 million, and the University of Cincinnati endowment is a billion dollars. Yet we're putting people to work. We're feeding the market. We have a workforce development whose main charge is to fill fill the skills gap that exists to be able to train people to go into those jobs that those employers are now complaining that they can't fill. We can do that at a community college. We can shape a person that can come out with that skill set that you oftentimes have to wait four years. We can do it in two years. Well, your community college is really what the whole message from President Obama and the media is all yes. about when it says to filling the skills gap that exists in this country. I mean, it's the only way we're going to get our economy back in shape. I mean, you've stated it. I mean, I always hated this thing about Main Street and Wall Street because there's a ton of people in the middle who don't necessarily fall into either one of those categories. Who are, I mean, I built small businesses, and I give people jobs. And, you know, we started with nothing, and we raised money, and probably in the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars to put people to work, and we buy, we, we start companies, we build them, we hire people. And to me, to get people to work, they first got to be able to have the desire to work. They got to have the they got to have the, uh, the, not only the skill set, but the confidence that they can go out and do the job. Because when they go on the interview, and I think this probably happens a lot, they got to come across like they can be trusted to be able to go out and do the job. I mean, I think our country is way, way too much dependent on China and on other countries to do their work for them, and we need to bring that back home. I, th- I feel Absolutely. strongly about that. And, and the, the difference also between Cincinnati State and other schools is we're the number one cooperative college, cooperative, co- cooperative community college in the country. The University of Cincinnati is number one among the four schools. So our students get the academic, but they also get the experience. So when, when they go and work for a civil engineering company, uh, they, they come in with the academic degree, but they've already co-opted for a civil engineering company, so they have the practical skills. That's why our students are scooped up and why they are successful. So I think you have to have that both, both of those kinds of experience. Also in America, people need to understand that manufacturing is not your grandfather's manufacturing, some old, dark, no. dirty plant. I've gone to plants, um, and, and boy, if you don't know the computers, you're not going to work there. The plants are dependent a lot on robots and, and computers to do a lot of the work. 
So it's a different kind of experience. The good thing is that jobs are slowly moving back from China to the United States. Many of the United States companies are now going to really, they know they're not going to compete on price. They're going to go on quality. We make the best quality material in the world. And I think the companies now say, yes, we're going to be a little more price, but you're going to have a better quality piece of equipment. And other countries, I think, in manufacturing are going to respond to that. They're going to respond to quality. Well, the other thing, I think you're right, and I just came back from China, actually, and I can tell you that the kids don't want to – kids in China. I mean, China probably has more money than any country in the world today, and, you know, their economy is much like we used to have where everybody's very – they have a lot of wealth and they have a lot – I mean, a lot of wealth and a lot of luxury stores and things growing up, but the kids don't want to work in the factories like their parents did. Right. And, and so we have an opportunity to – because we've gone through this tunnel, and we're still in it, but we're going through it to really get our country back uh, and put it in the hands of our, of our, as you said, develop a middle class, make, make it successful, make it safe and, 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 and innovative, which was a key word. I think the thread I see in your life is education and innovation, and I think that you've been remarkable. I actually, we have... Unfortunately, a little time left. I want to kind of talk a little personally about a few things with you because your your work has changed so many lives. What was the wow moment in your life, both professionally and personally? I believe everybody's had one. What was yours? My wow moment? Hmm. Certainly as a college president, my, my really big wow moment is when we opened our campus in Middletown. Uh, the people of Middletown really, really wanted us because their downtown Middletown was dead. There was no business, no traffic, nothing. And they felt their last gasp would be if they could bring a community college to the town. And um, it, for us, it was a funding issue. They were going to give us the buildings, but we still needed money to renovate and to to have a source. And, and my board said, well, you can't have any money from Cincinnati. You had to go and open Middletown, but you can't have any money. Well, everyone told me that's impossible. How can you open an extension campus with no money? I was able to find a partner out of Boston, backed by they were backed by a hedge fund, and we created this very unique public-private municipality partnership in which we were able to open that campus. I have no debt. We'll never have any debt off that campus, and I share the revenues. They make the investment, and we share the revenues. So that was a wild moment again in that, hey, this is a way for schools to survive, that this is a model that I can share with every other community college in the state. And, in fact, three other schools now have that same relationship with our partner. So that was a wild moment for me because we were able to do, and now Middletown is busting. Four restaurants have opened near the college, including one high-end. There's a lot of traffic now in downtown Middletown. The people of Middletown are very excited about our presence. Well, let me ask you in just a couple minutes we got left, what does faith mean to you, and, and how has that played a role in, in kind of de- defining your road to success and, and accomplishment? Well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly, I, I think you have to look at our, our people very religious or very spiritual, and I'm very mm-hmm. spiritual. In uh, that I, I do believe in right and wrong. I, I do believe in the golden rule: treat others the way that you want to be treated. Uh, I do believe that every kid should have some foundation grounded in some religious teaching, because I think the core of all religions, especially those that talk about treating people right, are the same. Faith, I think, is is important. I, you know, I, when I lived in a house with no electricity and and really had nothing, you sort of had to have some faith that 
that someone was going to take care of you. And I, and I can understand how pioneers, when they went out west, they, they had to be religious. When they were sitting there at night in the wild, they had to have a sense in order to sleep that there was someone that could watch over them. And I think faith uh, is important because then it teaches you to have faith in other people, and that's how trust comes, that you have faith that all people will come together or core people will come together to take care of a problem that's affecting the community. But I think faith is important because from faith comes ethics, comes and from ethics and faith you know uh you tend to hopefully make the right decisions at least you make the right decisions not in a malignant way and you hope you're not making all your decisions in a selfish way but making decisions that will impact your family first and then your community well i i share your view i look at my life spiritual as a spiritual journey and uh, i have one question for you we got about 60 seconds left it's been an unbelievable honor to have you on the show and i hope you'll come back and and continue to share your journey with us. As you look back on your journey and on your life, I'd like to ask you, and I've asked 60 people before you that I've had on the show, from Bob Costas to Leslie Stahl to Nicholas Sparks, to uh, a lot of interesting people who have contributed, as you have. Uh, I'd like to ask, what do you feel is the real meaning of life, the real purpose of life? The real purpose of life has to be that you have to leave this world in better shape than you, than you got it. The real purpose of life is to improve the quality of other people so that life will continue. It's a beautiful answer. I, uh, I will tell you I think it's the most important thing we can do, and we have to continue to do it and teach our young people to do it. Adele, my friend, we've known each other a long, long time. <laughs> Back to Troop 96. Uh, our time's up. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and thank you for sharing your journey with us. I know you're an incredibly busy man with a lot of responsibility, so I thank you for taking the time to be with us today. I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice of America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off, and please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern for our next episode. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with much hope, inspiration, success, and to you, Dr. Odell Owens, my friend, all the best to you. God bless and uh, continue doing the work you're doing. And I will make sure we get the word out there about what a wonderful college system these state community college is and the work you're doing. Thank you, Jimmy. It was great talking to you today. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 